Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I'm so happy and grateful to have Clint Malarchuk with us here today, who is a mental health advocate and speaks professionally around North America on mental health, PTSD, depression, and his struggles with mental health and how it affects you. Through Clint's experiences as an NHL player and coach, Clint has developed philosophies on developing leadership skills and overcoming life struggles. Clint's memoir, A Matter of Inches in the U.S. and The Crazy Game in Canada, How I Survived in This Crease and Beyond, was published in 2014. Clint, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Great to be on, Jess. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. I was I was sharing with you before that your background is my favorite Zoom background I've seen so far. <laughs> well, and I shared with you, I said, well, I'm outside from sun up to sun down. Uh, I bring my computer out and uh, if I'm in my tack room or if I'm in my uh, barn or whatever, I got my, I got, I can do business still. It's awesome. Clint, you and I were, we had shared before in a conversation, uh, one of my I guess one of my biggest fears and during this kind of unique period in time is I think mental health has seen been on and challenges related to it have been on the rise as of late. And I feel like many of those may be compounded exponentially. And I'm starting to see little data points that are reflective with that. And part of what my inspiration was behind doing this series was to really help provide tools and strategies to help people in with mental health. And I'm wondering just with being outside and spending as much time in nature as you do, is that intentional for your for your well-being for your mental health and and if so what is is there a is there a, a a daily dosage of nature that you recommend for people well for me it's it's subconscious i i, I don't like being in the house i get claustrophobic um, the sun is shining and even when it's winter um, i'm outside i'm an outside guy uh, i feel more um, I, I guess free lack of a better word, uh, just, uh, you, you know, being outside, just nature, my horses, my chickens, my goats, my everything, dogs. And uh, for me, that's just, uh, it, it's, it's just huge. Um, anytime I've been hospitalized or, or kind of, you know, restricted on going outside, well, you're, it, it really affects me. So I love the sunshine. Uh, I love the wind. I love the rain. Mm. Uh, you know, I love the earth. I love feeding my horses and, and smelling that, that hay, you know, nature. Yeah. One of the things that we didn't mention in your bio is that you're also a horse chiropractor, correct? Horse chiropractor and a horse dentist. And a horse dentist. Right. Have you always, I imagine it takes a very special bond and relationship to, with people to work so closely with animals have you always had like that bond with animals a closeness to animals yes jesse i have um and i think it's uh reciprocal i i i can walk up to horses that uh the owner will say well be careful he's really and the thing is loving on me so i do have that uh i think it's a confidence really when i walk to up to an animal you know horse dentistry chiropractor whatever and they're they're giving me the green or the uh, red flags and everything I, mean, I i got this and uh and people are kind of amazed at at uh, my my approach to animals and how they reciprocate to me what do you find that you learn from animals clint i'm curious because i feel like every time i'm around 
in nature and, and in the presence of an animal, to me, I always feel like I walk away with something from them. Well, I, I watch my animals all the time. I free feed everything, you know, there's, they got feed all the time. And I watch when they're hungry, when they eat, how they interact, even my dogs. Um, you know, one will start growling. He's got the, he's got the feeder protected on the patio and it's his time to, to, uh, to eat. And, you know, animals, they, you know, they sleep when they're tired, they eat when they're hungry and, uh, who, who knows what else. Um, and we get so regimented, I think, you know, on, uh, our structure and everything. And, and my mom even taught me that you're hungry, eat. If you're tired, sleep doesn't matter what time. I, you know, it's funny thinking about that way. I wonder too, how much does that structure add extra stress in the sense of that we, we, is it humanity where we don't, we haven't learned to honor just our natural inclinations like an animal might to eat when we're hungry, to sleep when we feel the need rest. Instead, we try to push ourselves more and more and more and especially in, gosh, the entrepreneurial space where it seems like, or in athletics too, I imagine, where a lot of times we pride ourselves on how much further we can push ourselves or how much harder we can go than anyone else. Right. No, I know what you're saying. And, and it's true. We've become, as a society, just very structured. And I, I understand that because I got obsessive compulsive disorder. So I do like structure. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, my structure is sunshine and animals and <laughs> kittens and puppies and all that. Well, they say sunshine, everything's not always sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> well, I've got it pretty good. That's a good, that's a good structure to have. So Clint, I want to talk a little bit about your, your mental health journey. And then I also want to touch on some of your Ted talk, which I absolutely love. If you yeah, want to mind. Too. Yours too, by the way. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you. I finally got around to it, you know. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, there is, there is one point I really want to, I want to draw some attention to in the Ted talk, but I want to start first with you just giving a little bit of summary of your story and what brought you here today to being an advocate and speaking well, about mental health. I'll try and do it in a, in a short version because it's a pretty long journey that I've been on. Uh, as a kid, I, I came up, uh, you know, idolizing my father who was an abusive alcoholic, which the progressive disease gets worse and worse and worse. So, you know, he was a great guy. But, you know, the, 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 the disease got him. Had a brother older and a sister older uh, by six, my sister, and seven years by my brother. And so my brother kind of became my uh, father figure. Anyways, I'll just, uh, I struggled really, really bad as a kid with anxiety. And I was even hospitalized and, and certain things and um, they just sedate you. And back then, thank God we've come so far with our mental health uh, counseling, medications, therapies, all that, you know. And uh, so anyways, uh, yeah, so I got through my, my kid years. And I, I think mental illness for me kind of went dormant, come back, dormant, come back. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was 1989. I was playing for the Buffalo Sabres. And I cut my jugular vein. I had no idea that trauma and of course I was preparing for death. I mean, the blood was everywhere and um, you, you know, it was, it was pretty certain death for Clint and I got up and skated off the ice because my mom was watching the game. I didn't want her to see her son die wow. on, on TV. And uh, so it was the next season after that where the PTSD, 
undiagnosed or un, unheard of words back then, I think. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I started to have wicked nightmares, flashbacks, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, uh, depression. And so I finally got diagnosed by a team of doctors in Buffalo. And it was two, three years of hell, just different therapists, different medications, different this, this. Well, I, my play was declining rapidly and I got sent to the minors. I went to San Diego, California. And the first game I, I played there, I led him four goals on six shots. And now I'm going, my God, I can't even play in the minors. Mm. And uh, I got pulled after the first period. And I remember sitting on the bench, put a towel over my head and just bawled. Just tears just kept running down my face. So I went into our coach's office and said, I'm retiring. I can't do this. And he, he to this day is a great, great friend, a great guy, Rick Dudley. And uh, anyways, Rick got me in to see this great specialist guy. And I've been seeing doctors and specialists. Well, this guy actually fixed me up. He said, mm -hmm. you, got a you got a chemical imbalance. Just like a diabetic is a chemical imbalance. But yours is with the brain. You don't produce enough serotonin. So at six weeks, I remember going to see him once a week. At week six, I was like, holy moly, is this what it feels like to be normal? At nine weeks, my obsessive compulsive disorders were gone. So this medication and this doctor basically, you know, changed my life. And uh, I went about 15 years on that medication. And, uh, you know, being a hockey guy, I traveled there, coached there, moving around. I lost kind of, I didn't check in with Dr. Stahl. I thought as, as long as I take these pills, I'm going to be fine. Okay. Well, the combination of the pills not working anymore over time, 15 years, and uh, another hockey player cut his jugular vein. And I'm working for an NHL team at the time as a goalie coach, and they're, I'm very media accessible. And so they're basically asking me to relive a trauma over and over. I tell the story, I tell the story, I tell the story. And my meds aren't working, which I didn't know. And uh, so I had 20 years of undiagnosed PTSD, meds aren't working, reliving. And one day I went behind my barn and I was shooting some targets and drinking heavily because there's a huge correlation between alcoholism or addiction. And mental illness because we self-medicate and it works and that's the problem that it works what two beers would do then it's four then it's eight then it's 10 12 you know and so you become an alcoholic as well or a, an addict and uh so i went behind the barn and I, I i couldn't take it anymore i didn't want to die but i didn't want to live in that pain in my head so i pulled the trigger uh fortunately i got a thick skull that bullet got lodged in my skull and uh you know i'm just so grateful that's where life really turned turned around for me jess is is uh you know i started to you know i should have been done three times almost dead three times and uh so that's when the book came into play i wanted to help people and my education was broadened like you would not believe because I did not realize how many people out there struggle in silence and in darkness, just like I did and didn't want to tell anybody because of the stigma and, you know, um, kind of sounds weird, but the best thing that ever happened probably for me was surviving a suicide attempt. 
and uh, living through it and realizing what my purpose is. And that's to help people that are still in that dark place and fighting that stigma and they want help, they know they need help, uh, all this in there, or denial, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. You know, all these things that uh, people are going through. And uh, I'm here, I'm, I'm, that's what my mission is now. That's what brought me here on this, uh, on this, uh, you know, podcast. That's what uh, makes me go around public speaking um, because I know there's people that are really, really in a dark place and doing it all by themselves, just like I did. Thanks for sharing that, Clint. When you were, when you were going through that time, did you were you did you sit with that thought often that nobody can understand nobody can relate i'm the only one going through this did is was so it was it the isolation was compounded and i'm curious did any time were there people that would come and check in on you see how you were doing and if they did would you open up to them or would you kind of push it off and just be i'm fine no we're we're when when people like me are in that mode um we, we were the best actors in the world. Mm. My wife knew I was struggling big time. She knew I maybe even been possible suicidal, but uh, all my friends, oh God, I, I can put on that actor suit. And uh, most of us are like that. We can act it out. And everybody goes, oh man, functioning great, good guy, whatever, good gal. If somebody has somebody, somebody who's watching and listening to this right now, hearing your story, they are maybe becoming aware of or having this feeling that someone in their life is putting on the actor's suit. Yeah. How is there a is there a best way for them to approach them, to try to support them, to try to open up a line of communication where they might be receptive to it? Well, you know, I was pretty I was pretty mentally ill and, you know, um uh, when it, right before I shot myself and everything. And Joni was trying, my wife, Joni was trying to get me help. And, um, you know, the way the medical system is, you know, I don't want to start bashing on that, but you know, it, it was tough for me to get in. And they even told her until he hurts you or himself, really, we're, we're, you know, yeah. and it, it took me hurting myself, right. With a gun and, uh, to get the right help. And that's wrong. That's sad. But, um, yeah, it's, it, uh, that whole thing with the acting, we're very good at it. And why do we do that? Because we got people like you that are doing podcasts and trying to get it out there and erase the stigma, all these things. But when you're in your deep, darkest moments, you're just thinking you're going to be judged. You mm -hmm. don't want to come, you don't want to come out. Uh, you got going to have guilt and shame um, and all because of the damn stigma, right? You know, is a diabetic guilt and shame? No, no, but it's a chemical imbalance just like I have and many others. Clint, I'm curious, your, your coach who you had in the minor leagues, who you went and told after that first game, where you had the four goals on the six shots that you're going to retire. What was it, do you think, about him that – because I can imagine in the late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't common for no. men to offer help to men, especially in a very, uh, you know, 
masculine like sport like hockey and for him to be able to have that pause and you know i don't know if i'm choosing my words right but to to see a hurting human there beyond like the athlete or the player or you know sometimes i look at athletes and it's almost like a commoditized entity to an organization in a way right what was it do you think about him that he was that he he saw that and he was able to recognize and, and advocate for you to go and see that specialist well rick and i um you know he's uh he's he's 73 i think now and i'm 59 so Rick and I met when he was ending his career and I was just beginning my pro career. We're playing in the minors. He gets sent down because he's got bad knees and needs to rehabilitate. And, and uh, he, him and I just hit it off like, like right away. Um, he was a great leader for not just me, but all our players. And then he got years go on. He went coaching um, and I continued my year or my years in the NHL and uh, so it ends up he's uh, an NHL coach with the Buffalo Sabres and I'm the, I'm the goalie hmm. and so we, we had formed a bond he loved my uh, my toughness he and I loved his I mean he, he, he could intimidate he was a his chest everything I mean just a big barrel man he would intimidate anybody but he, his heart is kind and soft and and uh, I don't know where he got it uh, in his head to um, help so many players, not just me, not just me, mm-hmm. a lot of players, a lot of players. Uh, I'm not sure because he, he, you know, he just relates, but he won't tell why he or how he relates. He'll just say, you know, nothing really happened to me, you know, but he's just mm-hmm. a good solid soul and uh, saved my life for sure. Um you know, we're still in touch for sure. Clint, I want to touch on that toughness you just mentioned. And specifically, there's a moment in your TED Talk, and I encourage everyone to watch it. That really, it floored me. And it was a moment you were talking with, you were sharing with the audience your story and that you had had, you, you, you get off the ice because you're worried about your mom seeing you die. And you have this horrific injury. And then you go on to say, and I'm paraphrasing here, so please forgive me, correct me if I'm misquoting it, that you were back on the ice within 10 days. And what happened next was the audience applauded. And what really got me is as they started to applaud, you stopped them and said, no, 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 no. And I thought that was such a powerful moment for me because I, it, for me, as, as I was experiencing that, I was like, gosh, that, that, is that a part of the problem right there? Like culturally, we're almost taught to celebrate this toughness. And, you know, it's like there's this, there's this almost a, a medal we get or kudos or adulation for sucking it up and stiff upper lip and all the stuff we were told as a kid, you know, big boys don't cry, bottle it up, be a man. And so here you are telling the story, which is this like really ultimate warrior, hero, masculine story. You go through this horrific injury, you're back out there, back ready to fight the good fight or whatever it is in that kind of ethos. And we're celebrating, but that was what was one of the problems because you never really took that time to assess and fully heal, right? Assess the trauma and then fully deal with it. 
I, I'm wondering if you you could touch on that because when when I'm experiencing that as an audience member and seeing that interaction go on, it, it's almost like you're you're trying to get them to stop that programmed response of celebrating the toughness and start to look at the consequences of celebrating that toughness. Well, Jesse, I, I really, uh, I incorporate in my talks the, uh, you know, first responders and definitely our military because they're the toughest minded people in the world to do what they do. And we had, you know, what, 22 suicides at one point in the U.S. Uh, from just Afghanistan and Iraq veterans. Yeah. You know, toughest minded people, but they go over there and they come back and they got PTSD. They, they've seen some crap. They've seen some and their life has changed. And now they're trained to be warriors. Right. Uh, you know, and now we're saying, OK, we're going to get you help. You got to talk. No, they were trained not to talk, not to let, you know, you know, just to push through everything. So for me. Um, you know, the macho thing and, and, and with, uh, like, you know, I'm a cowboy. I used to box. I played in the NHL. You know, I am physically very tough, Jesse, but mentally. So I guess the point being, it makes me feel good that these guys and gals, they get PTSD because it really hurt my feelings, man, to, to, to think that I was labeled with another disorder. Hmm. You know, I got depression, anxiety, panic attacks, sleep disorder, blah, blah, blah. And now they want to give me PTSD. And I'm like, no, I was so insulted, Jess. I came back in 10 days and they're going, that's why you have PTSD. This is 20 years later that they're telling me this. Whoa. So they're telling, they were telling you it in between and you're just like, no way that's not happening because it's just, it's adding basically another diagnosis or a label or something more of yeah, yeah. Uh, another reason why you're broken or you're wrong or you know something's not right or whatever that dialogue is right no absolutely and and um yeah i was totally insulted by that another label um you know part of it was being a man part of it was being um you know what i came back in 10 days don't throw that shit in my face so my ego mm -hmm. is is hurt because I did come back in 10 days and it was hard to do that. So now they're telling me this PTSD stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm tough. I'm one tough bugger. And it was the acceptance two months in to my stay at the uh, treatment center. Um, it was the acceptance. Okay. I do have PTSD that got me, you know, over the hump and getting to, to do the work. Clint, how do you how do you feel we begin to I don't know if it's a conversation we have or if it's a it's a self-examination as a culture where we start to look at like our our correlation to pushing and celebrating toughness on certain populations and then what the what the consequences of that are because it's it's I can imagine it has to be difficult because I mean I've been in plenty of of bars when somebody goes down and there's that audible hush that goes over and then when they stand up and they shake it off all of a sudden everybody cheers it doesn't matter if you're just booing them a few minutes ago everybody's cheering yeah and it's it's like we see and i don't experientially as a as a 
as a fan and audience member, it's almost like we see that toughness in them that we wish we saw in ourselves, maybe our ability to pick ourselves up, you know, carry on, fight through whatever it is. Right. But then there's this byproduct of it too, where if the toughness is at the expense of, it becomes this almost this identity, like, right. We have to like live up to where, where is our line that we're able to draw for ourselves in terms of getting our own help and support that we need to take care of ourselves. Well, I think, I think mental illness has, and we've come a long ways, but there's still that God dang stigma and we just got to get rid of it. And, you know, like if you're my boss and I go, Jess, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry. I just got from the doc told me I got cancer as, as the, uh, as my boss, you're going to go, Oh my God, Clint, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? You would take time off, work from home, whatever. Now, if you got mental illness, mm. first of all, I'm not even going to go to see my boss, Jess. You're my boss. I'm not going to go because I'm going to be judged. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's all about the stigma, guilt and shame. And how, do, how do we begin to change that, Clint? Well, we're, we're doing good. I mean, it's, it's a long, it's a long process. And you know what I, 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 I really admire is the, um, the, the gay and lesbian population. I remember back in the nineties, maybe late eighties, the sitcoms and all of a sudden, uh, two of the same sex are kissing each other. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh, oh God. That, that, you know, <laughs> right mm -hmm. but they they have uh they have organized parades they they they've worked hard and hard and diligent at being accepted and i think we got to be more a little bit on their line because now you watch a sitcom two people might get big deal like it's not yeah. a big deal and uh the, the the judgment i guess has has gone down and that's where I want, uh, you know, our mental ill community to be able to say, hey, it, it's like diabetes. It, it's not a, um, it's not a, a, a disorder that's any, like, like anything else, I guess. It, it, that's the frustrating part for me, Jesse. You know, I appreciate you sharing that, Clint. And it, that really resonated with me. I was, when you and I talked a few weeks ago, I told you the story about my friend Gabe's suicide. And one of the things that I'll never forget from that time is it was in the next day or two. And I saw a very dear friend of mine for the first time. And I'll never forget her coming up to me with tears in her eyes to hug me and looking at me and saying, I so badly want to help and support you right now, but I don't know what to say or do. And all I could say was that's okay. And it's, it's, you know what, it's almost, and you can, speak to this too what i so desperately wanted right then was to be loved and nurtured and made to feel safe just the same as when i would have a cold and would want to have somebody come and take care of me and, and bring me chicken soup or something like that or when i had a bad day at work and somebody to tell me it's going to be okay you know it, it seems like we keep coming back to this there's this like desire to be loved nurtured seen heard understood but 
because it's inside of us and because we can't see it, it we almost, and because the, and in those moments, it seems like we, we, we're not sure how to relate to it. We're still in that kind of like, you know, like we were in the sitcoms in the nineties. Oh no, no. You, we, what, what do we do? So is it, is it something that we can begin to nurture that more? We can begin to nurture conversations more. We can begin to, to, to nurture the people in our lives who we know are struggling, who we know are, are going through hard times. No, absolutely. I mean, that's what th this whole word stigma is all about. We gotta, we gotta keep going forward the way we are, and uh, you know, uh, talk about it. I mean, you know, so many people. And right now, with what's going on in our world, there's going to be a lot of people experiencing uh, grief, financial setback, anxiety, depression. Um, you know, this is their trauma, our trauma. And trauma sets off a lot of stuff, as I learned, and as you heard. Uh, so when people are going to go through all these things, they, I don't even want to call it mentally ill, but they're going to go through emotional sickness, which, which would be, it would encompass depression, anxiety, um, panic attacks, sleep disease, insomnia. Um, yeah, so... We're, we're, we're going to be right up to our chins in this right now. For people who would be in that place, who are wanting to start that dialogue, but they're unsure how, is there, is there a better practice to begin that dialogue with going up and, and opening up a conversation with someone that they're concerned about, they care about? Well, I, I, I look at the fact that you and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago and you were very vulnerable. I was very vulnerable. We just opened up, told our, our stuff. And it was like, no judgment there, no judgment yeah. here. And it was just a great, uh, to know that I'm not alone and probably for you likewise. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So. It's, it's elevating vulnerability almost as a superpower, right? <laughs> How do we celebrate vulnerability the same way we celebrate uh, getting bouncing back when we get knocked down? Yeah. Yeah. Clint, we're running a little short on time. So before I ask you my final question, where can, where's the best way for people to find you online, contact you, book you for speaking, everything? Uh, I have a website, uh, www.malarchuk.com. That's a cowboy goldie. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my emails, Canuck Ranch, just like Canuck with a C, Canuck Ranch at yahoo.com. And uh, yeah, awesome, Clint. Now your your time is spent when you're not when you're not taking care of the animals. You're not on your ranches. The ranch. You're going around. You're talking to. You're talking to in groups, organizations, schools, helping raise awareness about mental health, helping uh, trying to end this the stigma. whether it's an individual or group an organization that's li listening to this right now or watching us, I'd love for you just to share a parting thought, a parting feeling for them that they could take away and really, and hold close to their heart and keep close in their mind as they carry on with their day to day. Right. Now I, I, I definitely say, um, 
my journey, I did it in silence. I did it to uh, be tough. I did it for a lot of different reasons. And ultimately, I put a gun to my head. And uh, I don't want people to do that. Um, I was saved for sure, man. I'm, you know, but don't do it in silence. I suffer. I don't know. Jesse might suffer. I've got so many friends that have so much depression, anxiety, and they're doing it alone and in silence. We're here to help. We have great professionals now. Um, and there's a great, great life waiting for you. Like hope. There's a lot of hope here. And you just gotta, you just gotta make you, make sure you make, make your bed, make your bed, get up in the morning and do what you need to do to get help, to be healthy. And there's a lot of hope. I'm talking to you from a guy that's a, you know, a suicide survivor. So I know I, I had no hope. Now I do. Everyone, my goodness, are you going to want to rewatch and re-listen? What Clinch so generously shared with us today was not only a story that is his personal story, but a story that I think many of us can relate to and see ourselves maybe in different parts of him. Whereas we may not have been wearing ice skates, we might have been wearing tennis shoes. We might not have been wearing goalie pads. We might have been wearing a, a work uniform or a jersey. But you'll see maybe that there are, there are parts of him and his journey that resonate deeply with us. When we first spoke, I, he was sharing parts of his journey and I could just see part of myself in him. And I think that's one of the things that's so incredible with how generously and openly Clint shares his stories. It gives us an opportunity to really peer into the mirror and see who reflects back at ourselves. To be able to have those honest and open conversations with ourselves, to feel that it's safe and okay to, to honor what's going on inside of us. To perhaps recognize that if we have a loved one that's suffering in silence, that we, that we know is going through a hard time, but we may not be quite sure how to, op to open up to them or how to approach it because we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. We can take guidance from Clint and just know that to begin a dialogue, to begin a dialogue is safe and okay. To, to try to put yourself in their shoes and see the world as they might, it might give you an understanding and insight where they're coming from. I love that there is this conversation around toughness too and how we celebrate toughness so much so that he goes from getting his, his jugular vein cut to he's back on the ice in 10 days. And in that rush to get back to business as normal, which many of us do, there's not time to really check in and see if we're okay. You know, so taking that time to heal, to seek out and ask for help, looking at the idea of vulnerability being a superpower and, and using and expressing it to look for the hope too. You know, it's one thing for people to say there's always hope, but to come from a guy who felt at one point so hopeless that he went out behind his barn and put a gun to his head and to sit here from a place of congruence and certainty and to look all of us in the eye, to look all of us in the heart and soul and say that there is hope and there's a lot of life left to live. I think that is such a poignant and powerful and important, especially during these times where there's so much uncertainty in the world. To seek out the hope today, you know, the hope might be in the animals that we have in our backyard, it might be in the rustling of the trees, it might be in the wind, the rain, all the nature that plant acknowledged early on. Hope is out there. Hope is out there and, and don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. You are not alone. 
and that there are people out there who love you, who support you, who believe in you, and who are, who are here to help you. Clint, this has been absolutely such a blessing, man. Thank you so very, very much for sharing. All right, brother. Thank you. We've got, man. We'll see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to